0: Good morning travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctor's Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. My name is MD Hawk. I am a pre-med student in New York City. This podcast features a wide range of proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. To no further ado, Let us unwind the journey of medicine and life together. 2 1 and we are live. I am joined by a very special guest today. We had the privilege to have him on our first episode along with the nine other wonderful physicians. Ever since I have been so excited to interview him as he is an army veteran and a fitness competitor, it is the TikTok dermatologist, Dr. Dylan Greene. He is currently a dermatology resident at Indiana University. Dr. Greene was a non-traditional medical student because he initially served in the army as a combat medic and an army nurse. He was deployed from two 2007 to 2008 in Iraq during the Iraq war, where he tended to over 900 patients. Afterwards, he served as a squad leader over an eight-year period and was discharged in the rank of surgeon in 2012. As a medical student, he was very active in research on both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancer, with which he earned many awards and grants. His passion in skincare really shines as he was a medical staff at the American Academy of Dermatology camp, which is a camp for children with skin disorders. Now he is an active participant in VA, Veteran Affairs, to give back to his community. For hobbies, Dr. Greeny competes in men's physique competitions and makes very informative TikTok videos for his 70,000 followers on skincare, regimen, and product reviews. You can find Dr. Greeny on TikTok and Instagram at SwoleMD. That's S-W-O-L-E-M-D. You can follow him for fitness tips on Instagram at Ironsnack. That's Ironsnack. Without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Greeny to the inn. Good morning, Dr. Greeny. Thank you so much for doing this. How's everything going?
1: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on and for the awesome introduction. I really appreciate it. It's going good. Enjoying the weekend.
0: Perfect. I mean, yeah, it's, it's been pretty tough with, with everything going on in California and just the COVID situation. So yeah, it's tough to say the least.
1: Big time. Yeah. It's really made a big impact in, uh, in resident education. I mean, our department, it was somewhat shut down for about six weeks or so, you know, we were doing a whole lot of rescheduling patients and uh, we see about a thousand patients a week. So you can imagine that's a whole lot of patients to try to reschedule. Yeah. And then you um, end up with a big backlog of people that really need help. So it's been a definitely a challenging time.
0: Oof. Yeah, I mean, I really can't imagine like how the transition had been for a lot of these departments. So yeah, I mean, there are just so many different ways we can go about this primarily because I'm very interested in your non-traditional journey. So I guess we can kind of segue into how it all got started. Would you mind telling us about your journey as an undergrad, an army nurse being deployed, all the exciting yet tragic stuff? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Definitely. So, yeah, when I was, uh, so I graduated high school in 2004. And um, fortunately, I had a couple friends around me at the time that were in the military, because uh, when I was getting out of high school, my original plan, you know, I, I love computers, I was a big computer nerd, <laughs> and I uh, played video games and everything that worked them. And that was kind of my passion at the time. And I really thought that was going to end up being my career. Oh. But I had a couple friends in the army and it gave me kind of the bright idea to join the military. And this was, you know, after 9-11 had happened and, and I had like something inside of me that wanted to join the military for, for those reasons. And basically, uh, you know, ended up, I knew these friends in the military. I, I ended up looking at joining the military. I convinced one of my good buddies, <laughs> uh, Sean Beck, to join with me on the battle buddy system which usually doesn't work out real well for people. You know, you don't end up spending a whole lot of time together, but we actually joined together and we both went to join for it because we knew we wanted to do something in the military that you could use in the civilian world too. Right. You know, I didn't want to go personally and do artillery or something. You get out and what do you do with it? You know? Um, of course you gain good skills in the military no matter what, but, uh, it field or in this case, like the medical field was way more translatable. So, um, ended up joining as a combat medic because there were no IT jobs at the
0: time. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: (laughs) So that's because I had no one in my family. No one in my family was in medicine. I didn't know a single nurse. I didn't know a single doctor personally. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I fortunately had the foresight to think, well, what can I use in the, what can I use in the civilian world, you know? And so I was like, well, I can join in and it was titled healthcare professional was the name of the job, right? <laughs> okay. So that turns out that was actually combat medic school. Right. So that was a 16 uh, week program. You become an EMT basic and then you do a whole lot of other training in the military. And uh, as far as like combat trauma, field lanes, treating amputations, sucking chest wounds, like innovating people in the field, all those things. So um you know, you realize the significance of how you could impact people's lives clearly in that situation. And so I was sold on medicine at that point, but I was, I was in the journey. I, it was in my contract to become a nurse in, in the military too. Oh, wow. So I actually did my nursing training right along with my combat medic training. It, it was a, basically an additional skill identifier in the military. So that was another um, couple years of training to become a nurse. And so I traveled around from Texas, to Georgia and did, you know, didactic and clinical training in nursing, ended up taking the Texas State Boards for Nursing so I became an LPN through the military and then ended up using that when I got out to work in the civilian world. So kind of before I started undergrad and everything, I, I had a profession, you know, I had a job I could do and at least work part-time and, and make decent money as a nurse. And that, I think in a way made undergrad a whole lot easier for me because I wasn't having to juggle like a bunch of part-time jobs and stuff like that.
0: Wow. I mean, that is a story because it's, it seems like like you stumbled upon medicine, you know, because the IT job wasn't available. So, right. <laughs> and now you are a an entire dermatologist. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like a lot of things, you know, we're we're planners, generally people that are in medicine, you know, you're a lot of type A people and try to make, figure everything out ahead of time. And uh, yeah, I look back at so many decisions in my life and, and the way it affected me and the path I took. Yeah. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for the military. I certainly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the military. So um, it's not for everybody, but it was, um, I wouldn't trade it for the world.
0: Oh, wow. That's so nice to hear. And yeah, it just seems like like your passion, it just grew as you kind of, I guess, devoted yourself more towards that and you started to see more patients and you saw how much of an impact you had,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, taking care of people in the military I mean, you get the feel for the value that it brings to people. You feel like you're really doing something meaningful every single day. And then nursing, you know, is a wonderful profession. But for me, when I got, I got deployed to Iraq and I'd been home for about six months after I graduated nursing school in the military and got the deployment orders to go to Iraq. And I was going over with the combat support hospital and I was over there for about, deployment took a year, but I was on boots on the ground for about nine months over there. And so, I mean, I live like steps away from the hospital. So it's like you basically are at the hospital and you're at your chew, which is your little container housing unit, and that's your life for a year. So I was surrounded by doctors. And at some point I said, wait, maybe this is something I can do. You know, because it's <laughs> yeah. like you're sitting there and you're seeing them make plans for people. Of course, the people that we interact with. There's awesome people over there, like Vince and Vance Moss, which are identical twin surgeons who love teaching. They're just really encouraging. And then there's another surgeon actually over there, David Bentley. He's down in Kentucky. They were huge mentors to me. They they set me on the right path because I was considering going to like RN school, basically. Hmm. And um, they kind of pushed me to become physicians and uh, physician. And yeah, I'm so thankful for the people you interact with, too, because it makes a huge difference and makes a big impact on
0: you. You just mentioned your time in Iraq. So how was it like working with patients from another country who spoke a completely different language? Was there a culture shock? Or did none of that really matter as it was during the war?
1: Right. So, I, you know, you wonder how things are going to be and how you're going to be able to communicate with patients and things like that. We certainly heavily relied on our interpreters, although we had times when there was actually like patients there that we didn't even have interpreters that spoke their language, which is like so hard. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what do you, you, know, what do you even do? You know, um, we were isolated in a lot of ways from the culture, actually, of Iraq, because I was like I said, I lived in, uh, you know, a mile square the whole year. So um, our colonel that we were over over there with, Colonel Hale, our mission was to run that hospital. So we weren't going on convoys. We weren't going out to the cities. We weren't doing any of that. We were in the hospital the whole time. I guess the nice thing about it is, is like, we took good care of people. It didn't matter who they were, where they're from, what they were doing. And that includes taking care of like our coalition forces, our contractors, local nationals, but then also we would have like insurgents. Really? So it was like, yeah, so it was it was pretty wild, but no matter what, if it was life, limb, or eyesight, they could come to our hospital, and we would take care of them. So you'd have, you know, our normal, one of our guys that would, had been hurt in some type of accident or something, and then you'd have an insurgent on the other side of the room, five feet away, um, with a guard, a Marine guard, that's sitting next to him. They got blacked out goggles on, oh, because wow. they can't see where they're at. Yeah. You know, they're technically prisoners, and they're, they're linked to the bed. I mean, so... But we But again, they have threat, life-threatening injuries that they need treatment for. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, we took the best care we could of everybody that we came across.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the beauty of healthcare. I, I'm just so glad that and you highlighted this is because like you were able to treat patients who were not just you know who were not on your team, but also national citizens, insurgents, and yeah. Just at the end of the day, it's just all human matters, and I'm just so glad that you had this experience. Uh, what was the most troubling or the most uh, kind of serious cases that you encountered.
1: Oh, there's I, there is a, a lot of, you know, hardship and you wonder, you know, you you hear a lot about PTSD and stuff like that and and just things you see, right? Like it, what, mm-hmm. are, what are you going to bump into when you're over there? What things are you going to experience? So it's a, it's a lot I like thought about before I went to Iraq, but when I got to Iraq, it was more of like, hey, I, I got to do, I'm here to do what I got to do. And you kind of face it that way. There's still things that you see that are just really, really troubling. Like no matter how good the intentions are for any type of like military conflict, the hardest thing is like, the collateral damage, innocent people mm-hmm. getting hurt. I mean, it happens. There's no way to avoid it. It's impossible. So I think some of the things that stuck with me the most, like I dealt with uh, some kiddos over there that like had been injured from different type of munitions, stuff like that, and that was the the hardest thing to see. I mean, it was it was terrible, and and you could help them, but you knew that they were. Go, ultimately going back to at that time, like a pretty destroyed infrastructure, like what kind of quality of life they're going to have afterwards. It was really, you know, really, really sad. And, and, um, and that, that's probably the hardest thing. You see a lot of miscommunications like wars, total chaos. You know, I saw people that were, they were probably shot when they shouldn't have been shot. It was a miscommunication thing and language thing. That kind of stuff is just horrible. You know, you don't want to see that happen to anybody, but um, that was one of the few patients that I actually got to see back, you know, In residency, we always talk about continuity and having the continuity of care with patients. And uh, there was only one patient in Iraq that I had saw back from, he was in the hospital, ended up back at our hospital later on. I think I, maybe on his journey back home or something, but yeah, basically he was a bus driver and um, there was like a checkpoint. He didn't stop. There was some there was a unilateral firefight, unfortunately, our guys and this guy. And uh, he taken he got a shot in the jaw, wow. which we yeah. had. We had uh, oral facial surgeons there that repaired him the best they could. They did a flap of skin to repair everything. But that's the kind of stuff that happens that it's just really, really sad. And of course, there was times when I saw like our own guys that had been killed in accidents and things like that. And that's the hardest thing, I mean, to see.
0: Wow. I mean, that is uh, that really weighs heavily on a person. And I really can't imagine how it must have been while there. So, um, you also mentioned, you know, as you were going in there, you said, that's what I had to do. Like, that's my job. So, the retired Army veterans that I passionately follow, like David Goggins, Jocko Willink, they always have that um, go do it yourself, own up to your mistakes, get up, be disciplined, clock is ticking, work hard, that kind of mentality. Would you say that rigorous training and experience overseas trained you to be a hardcore, as hardcore and disciplined in your daily life?
1: Well, I I don't think I can compare myself to Jocko. I I don't think uh, anyone can. (laughs) No, I mean, he's just a whole different breed. It definitely changed my life for the better, without a doubt. I mean, because when I was in high school, and I'm kind of thankful for this, I, I was not like, I did I wasn't super focused on academics. I wasn't an athlete, you know, like I wasn't one to burn time at practice playing an instrument or working out. I think it's wonderful. I mean, I wish I had those skills now. Right. But, um, It was really taking that break because I could have easily rolled into like community college or something like that and done IT. But taking that break allowed me to come back and really appreciate learning a whole lot more and take it with a seriousness. I came back with a very like laser focus on the on the idea of becoming a physician. So it made everything much easier to prioritize. I just came back. And then again, it's kind of like doing what you got to do and buckle down in that. And I just think it gave me a sense of of maturity. I think seeing things in the war, of course, puts everything in perspective of what's important and what you need to worry about. So I think it alleviated some anxiety on that front too. Although having anxiety as a pre-med student, no matter what, is... uh, is warranted and justified.
0: Yeah. Um, would you say, okay, so, so it seems that your discipline definitely carried over to medical school and having that pinpoint focus, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say so. Uh, speaking of medical school as a um, non-trad, there are some anecdotal speculations that it is often harder to get into medical school as a non-traditional student. So what helps you stand out? as a non-trad, do you have any recommendations for other non-traditional students or any students in general who are applying to medical school?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I definitely think I would shift that that line of thinking. I don't know what the statistics show, but I think that you're actually coming from a position of strength as a non-traditional applicant Um, without a doubt. I I think it's, it's, it's much better because people have went out, they've lived life experiences, they've possibly worked in careers and you got to really know how to frame all the skills that you've gained in those experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to, you could, you could not frame them well and you could not present yourself well, and it would make it a whole lot less meaningful. And it make your uh, journey look a little chaotic and unplanned. But if you, if you can uh, highlight your failures, how you you know, how you overcome them, highlight your strengths that you, you know, developed through this, of course, like, working in business or anything like that, you know, you're learning communication skills that are critically important in medicine and those kind of things. So it, you're really coming from a position of strength. And, and just the fact that when you get to an interview, if someone has a very straightforward and maybe they had it figured out from the get go, right. And they just did it straight through high school, college, med school, straight up. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. But I think you just, you really stand yourself out and you have a whole lot more to talk about folks. When you've lived some of these other life experiences, you can speak to why this is the next step you want to go. Like what, pushed you in your life to get to this point and it just makes for a lot more justified kind of meaningful line
0: yeah definitely uh just like more maturity and more experience and i mean you definitely have a ton of prior experiences uh so speaking of experience can you please give us uh, some oversight on your research with sunscreen protection and skin cancer. What did you learn that can be applicable um, for the general public?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I, I was lucky to go to a great medical school. It's Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine up in Michigan. And I was part of their third class, which um, had unique challenges, but also it was a cool time to be affiliated with a school because when a school's that young, you have a lot of ability to kind of mold the the institution in a way, you know? There's a lot of room for yeah. feedback, which is cool. But one of the cornerstone um, you know, aspects of the program there was having like a capstone research project. And I'll be honest, like research is not one of my, my true, like strong passions. Like I don't, it's not something I'm real passionate about, but you know, and I knew I wanted to do something meaningful that I was interested in. I knew I wanted to be a dermatologist. Well, even when I applied to med school, right. So, okay, which, okay wow. so I, I actually passed up a few different opportunities, like with basic science research and stuff like that, did a whole lot of cold calling, trying to find the right person who would mentor me in a project. And, and ultimately ended up, uh, finding uh, a gentleman I worked with actually at Camp Discovery, uh, Dr. Huggins, and he mentored me on that uh, a project that it was kind of inspired by my time as a nurse. It was on uh, why people delay seeking care for non-melanoma skin cancer. Mm-hmm. So, in, in the patient experience I had with that was basically when I was uh, working in Decoy, Illinois, kind of a small rural community. There was a lady that came in and she had a bandaid on her face just right on the central part of her cheek um, and it and she came in and, and she immediately got tearful she took the band-aid off it was very obviously like a basal cell carcinoma com- very common skin cancer you know they grow slowly over over time so uh, she took the band-aid off and she knew something was wrong she knew it's not you know this is not healthy this is not something that's you really should wait for. So the question though, is she'd waited like 10 years to have this removed. So it's like, why is it? And in her case, it was a, there was a financial drive. She's real worried about how much it was going to cost to get it removed, wow. which is, you know, it, it, that hurts. And when I, so when I did the research, which it was um, affordable care act and that kind of thing was happening around the time I was doing the research. So people were, um, you know, I guess better insured at that point. But the, what I found was, and what other studies had supported was it's actually like denial and fear, but denial being the primary factor for why people end up delay. They, you know, they have a lesion on their face. They know it's there. They know it's probably not healthy, but they wait out of denial and fear saying, well, I could treat it with Neosporin or I could cover it with a Band-Aid. Oh, it seems to be getting better. And then it kind of scabs up again. So they talk themselves out of getting treatment a whole lot, or they fear going in for a procedure, but denial is the big factor for it. So that was a real rewarding project to kind of help better understand that and further explore that situation that I just experienced as a nurse. Wow.
0: Uh, that's some really interesting findings. Uh, so just to kind of like move on from this. So the organ that screams the age of a person and how old they are is obviously the skin. Uh, photo protection can also be an effective prevention method for anti-aging measures. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, yeah, so the skin it, it is the largest organ. And I heard that recently someone tried to take that by claiming the interstitium is an organ and it is the largest organ, which I, I don't know if I can... S- actually refute it, but I I don't like it. I like the skin. (laughs) There's a feud. (laughs) Yeah. So that's our thing. So, but yeah, so um, definitely like sun protection is by far leagues above the most important thing you can do. People are interested in cosmetic procedures and Botox and fillers and lasers and all that. And it can be very expensive, but the the least expensive thing you can do that has the best anti-aging uh, benefit for your skin is sunscreen every single day. So sunscreen, SPF 30 or better, every single day is the absolute best thing you can do. And then you, you can add on things beyond that.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll take note of that and everyone else should too. <laughs> um, so for those of us who don't have TikTok, and if you had to give one skincare product recommendation and one skincare must-to-do routine, what would they be? Because you're like known for that. That space.
1: Thanks. Yeah, this is a whole new thing that was kind of born out of quarantine. You know, I, I was uh, had a little boredom on my hands. I said, hey, I'll dabble in TikTok and, and found out people on TikTok are very interested in skincare. So it's been a really fun journey. Um, so, you know, the best thing, if I had to give an actual one product recommendation, my favorite product right now ever, if I had to like give up everything else and only keep this one, it would be Elta MD, E-L-T-A, MD, UV clear sunscreen. And it's a great sunscreen. It's a mix of a physical sunscreen, um, zinc oxide, and also chemical sunscreen. So it's, it's broad spectrum. Um, it also has niacinamide in it, which is it has a ton of benefits for the skin as well. Kind of can decrease redness. It's an antioxidant and that so that's my number one thing but usually when people ask me about a skincare routine i have to list three things and it's the sunscreen we talked about yeah uh, that's like your gold standard right and then your the next best thing you can do is is use a retinoid every single night okay so retinoids are like vitamin a derivatives and they have a, a ton of them they have it's one of the most researched chemicals basically in dermatology so They decrease fine lines and wrinkles. They can help even out pigmentation. They help uh, increase the thickness of the dermis. Um, So it just they have great anti aging properties. They also are active against acne. So it's like our gold standard treatment for acne, too. So it works for all these different things. Um, So you want to be using that at bedtime. And then in the in in the morning before your sunscreen, actually vitamin C serums have quite a bit of research with them. And um, so yeah, that's the top three is your vitamin C serums, your sunscreen into retinoid at bedtime. And now you can actually get retinoids over the counter um, before they were prescription only, but now adapalene is available over the counter. So that's one of my most highly recommended things. The only thing to note is it's not safe to use during pregnancy or breastfeeding.
0: Okay, thank you so much. That is that is really helpful and it should be noted down. Um, so while we are on the topic of skincare and how it promises youthfulness and healthy lifestyle, I think it would be unjust to not mention fitness and nutrition along with that. So on this topic, you've competed in multiple men's physique competitions, not just one, but multiple. Um, and I know it takes a tremendous... Tremendous effort, hard work, and concentration to achieve the sculpture-like physique that is required. So uh, it seems that you really enjoy these competitions too. Uh, Can you please walk us down the path of a competitor like you? Uh, What does your training schedule look like when you are getting ready for a competition?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it was uh, about five years ago that I think I did my first physique competition. It was while I was up in Michigan. And um, I just kind of felt stagnant in the gym. I'd been working out just steadily, you know, doing my thing for years. And, um, I never put a whole lot of emphasis in nutrition. You know, there was times when I tried to like, quote unquote, like bulk, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, ended up just like kind of putting on excess weight, you know, things like that, like a lot of mistakes and mishaps there. But, um, I ended up deciding to do a fitness competition just to learn a little bit more about nutrition, to push myself, to have some accountability. Cause I think anytime when you say, Hey, the show is on this date, I want to be on stage under the lights." There's no excuses. You got to you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And so preparing for that competition was the way to sync up my diet and my exercise routine because usually I had one or the other right. I was eating right or I was working out right but I wasn't doing both together. So during a show prep, you really get get those things together. And it's amazing. It's very motivational, especially after the first few weeks when you start seeing the results you get. Yeah, so I ended up, uh, for most people, I, I think it's somewhat generally said, like if you can see your abs a little bit uh, mm-hmm. before you start, you can probably get ready for a show in about 12 weeks. Um, if you can't really see your abs, it's probably gonna take 20 weeks or so. So it's three months of um, somewhat monotonous uh, diet so I I would eat the same thing every single day. Chicken breast. First, what was that? Chicken, Chicken breast? breast. Yeah. Yeah, chicken breast and rice. I ate a lot of sweet potatoes. So yeah, so you'd eat. I I would basically make my meals a week ahead of time, and it was no questions. It was it was brainless. It saved me a lot of time because I would just eat what I had there, Um, and I would train about five or six days a week, usually six days a week. But I'd only train for an hour. Okay. So it wasn't like it was taking like a ton of my time necessarily. Yeah. So I would do that, and, and and mostly I would do like a push pull legs type routine during my competition prep, and it was pretty moderate weight moderate reps, you know that was it was kind of an in between type thing.
0: So yeah, yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned how when you have a deadline, you tend to really like push yourself, and uh, that kind of like goes hand in hand with this law called the Parkinson's law, which basically states that your task fills the time that is allotted to it. So if you set a deadline that is maybe you know uh, two weeks ahead uh, versus a month ahead, you'll obviously get the same task done at the in a shorter period of time. So that really speaks for itself. Um, just to go back to to dieting um how did you maintain a healthy diet and workout schedule during medical school like you know even 1 hour is a lot during medical school and residency when you're doing like so many hours of shifts uh does your discipline from the army help you stay on track while training or is it something
1: else well i think in the end of the day when you know anybody can do it once you set your mind to it an hour a day is a lot but i think there is like a diminishing return on studying i think anybody can squeeze out an hour in the gym. Yeah, because it's such a it's such a great benefit. I mean, for your health and for everything. I think a, a lot of people, you know, there's been so many new things now where you can track your calories and track your macronutrients and things like that. And I think sometimes stats really help people, you know, whether it's the step trackers or the food trackers. So that's helped people a lot. But the key to basically meeting your goals anyway, if a guy's wanting to get bigger, girls want to put on muscle, or if they're trying to lose weight, in the end of the day, you have to know what your like basal metabolic rate is, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to track your calories because if you don't do that, the chance for you reaching your goals are, are pretty much nil. So I think that's the most important thing for people. If you know if they want to get started on something, you can take um, twenty two and multiply it by your weight in kilograms. And that's going to give you a pretty good calorie like estimate for how much you're burning. Oh, wow. So for somebody that wants to maintain, you could sit there and you could say, I'm going to eat a diet of whatever, 1,800 calories. And I'm just going to stick to that. And then just see how your weight moves over a period of, of a week. Don't weigh yourself every day, but just weigh yourself once a week and then see how your um, how your weight moves. If it's not going down, drop your calories by a couple hundred and just do it slow and gradual. It's all about consistency. It, I think it's like so many other things though in, in the in our life we don't like doing the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't like, we put things off, right? So if you can take it and make it the first thing you do, for me, pretty much anytime I was in any rotation, um, even now after work, the first thing I do is go to the gym when I'm done. Like I don't, you know, I might have to come home and change or something, but I pretty much go to the gym and get it done. That's
0: so good to hear. And
1: Thanks. I mean, it's good. And honestly, now it's it's a habit. So it's a lot harder for me to not do that than it is to yeah. do you know, that's the way it becomes if you if you do it for a while.
0: Yeah, so it kind of like became a part of your life at this point. Um, so just to move on from this a little bit, um, I love all the clinical work that you are doing as an Army veteran to give back to other veterans in the VA programs. Veterans are often neglected in terms of mental and physical health, and we discussed this with PTSD. And it's actually like it absolutely genuinely hurts to see it happen. So... And not all veterans return with a happy smile because they have gone through so much trauma. Um, so can you please expand a little on your role and how you're helping out the community?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the nice thing about residency programs is the vast majority of them, like, hey, this, is, it, like, I think it's like over 80% of them are actually affiliated with VA care. So once you get into residency, like you're going to have experience with veterans and they're, they're great training environments veterans are a very they're an awesome community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go in and they take they take advice, they try to follow the recommendations that you you give. They're very thankful, they're very easygoing. Again, I think that goes back to the things they've seen and done and kind of changes this priority of things, right? So, so pretty much any resident is probably going to get some opportunity to work with veterans. And then if if you know, if there's pre-meds um or med students that want to do further opportunities, like the, the VA does have like a volunteer program. I don't know that, how that's been affected by COVID, but that's something that people can look into. And then, as you said, a lot of veterans have trouble kind of reintegrating into society when they come back. So the Army does things uh, called Yellow Ribbon Program, which is a a program that tries to get veterans back on track. You know, we're we're kind of in that, we're told what to do mentality when we're in the Army. You come home, you have ultimate Mm -hmm. flexibility, and it can be kind of challenging. So, but there there are some community programs like Team RWB, Red, White, Blue Team RWB, and that's a way that um, it kind of links veterans up with their communities, and they do like races and things like that, fundraising activities. So those are some things that people could look in that they may be able to do locally locally, um, to help veterans. But like you said, there's, there's a million problems that ve- unique veterans face, you know, homelessness, you know, veterans with amputees, PTSD. So if people have a particular passion or interest, I'd say explore that. And I bet you can find some type of organization or way to help those
0: people. Thank you so much for actually like highlighting this and bringing this to, to our attention. I mean, yeah, there just, there definitely needs to be more help in that, in that community. Um, so You're always smiling in your videos, but residency is not as easygoing. Uh, There are hard days and stressful days. So what coping mechanisms do you use to combat and calm your reactive response to the stressful days?
1: Yeah, I think you just always have to you have to remember why we're there. We're Mm -hmm. there to help take care of patients. So uh, sometimes, you know, when certain things happen, you know, a day gets busy. Maybe patients show up late, you know, and things like that. It gets stressful, you know, it throws you behind and stuff. And, you know, other patients get mad because it's running behind. You just say, hey, I'm getting to help more people, you know, just take it (laughs) it with positivity. I'm getting to help more people. You know, think about the, you know, the way you help people. Think about the last person that told you you made a difference Mm -hmm. in their life. So that's some big things. Um, stay close with friends and family because those are people that are always going to support you, that'll that you know they'll have an ear for you when uh when you need to talk about things. And then I personally do a couple other far less productive things, like I uh I play Dungeons and Dragons every week, so that's it <laughs> yeah. out for me. Let's stick my true nerd nature. So I do that yeah, we've had about 20 sessions in the last, in the last little bit. So I do that. And then the workouts, of course, as we mentioned is a huge uh, stress relief. So, um, and I play, I do dabble in a few video games as well, which is,
0: you know, Oh, uh, can you, can you tell us like, uh, <laughs> just top three on the top of your oh, yeah. mind?
1: So yeah. So escape from Tarkov hmm, I think oh, wow. this adds to anxiety more than takes away from <laughs> yeah. it. But, uh, it's a great game. I am a big player unknown battleground uh, fan too. Oh, gee, wow. I played it, yeah, less less recently. And then Overwatch, which is an older game, but that one's a whole lot less stressful. You can actually talk. Tarkov's all, all strategies and tactics. and Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> name tags or anything. It's stressful. So. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. Uh it's it's so great to hear a doctor like talk about just like fun things to do. I mean, it's like like this really shows that like residency and medical school is it's not as hard. It's it's what you make of it. So thank you so much for for like pointing this out. Oh,
1: absolutely. I think it's important. Yeah, we definitely aren't good, uh, as good as we should be about those things. You got to enjoy yourself. Keep your hobbies that you had before because you can let all that slip away real easily if you don't prioritize doing stuff for yourself.
0: Yeah. Um I believe we're actually near the end of the podcast as part the title of this podcast Doctors in let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark uh, we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by doctors Inn to rest for lunch before you leave the innkeeper which is me uh, asks you to share one code or piece of advice so that he can frame it on his wall uh, what would that piece of advice be it can be something you live your life by for example a principle or an ideology Yeah
1: so I think uh, one of the most important things is is uh, you have to remember what your drive was like when you were trying to get to your, where you're going so it's like you look back at when you're a pre-med and how much motivation you had and how much desire you had and how much you would give up to just get to where you want to be and so it's so easy when you you know you go through a process you work hard hours you know you face adversity it, you got to look back and think man what would i have, what would like pre-med me tell myself you know <laughs> And I think that's probably one of the best ways to like frame things and keep you motivated.
0: Beautifully said. And now with all that said, uh, if someone in the audience has any questions or interest in learning more about skincare, dieting, fitness, non-traditional path to medicine or the work you do, uh, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, looking for me on TikTok is probably where I'm most active. So TikTok at swolemd. Um, for the fitness advice, uh, you can stop by ironsnackfitness.com. We do custom meal plans and training schedules for people if you're interested in that. And then with the uh, the looming fear of TikTok going away, you can also find me on Instagram at Swollen bee. So I think we're about two days from that deadline. So I hope uh, they keep it around. TikTok's been an amazing platform that reached so many people. Yeah. A very positive platform mm-hmm. too. So.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Greeny, for taking your time out for this. I mean, I was so excited to have you. And needless to say, I think uh, I am ending the call more enthused than I already was. Uh, So thank you so much for that. And it was just an incredible conversation. I learned so much just in the span of 30 minutes.
1: Well, thank you so much again for having me on. It was a nice discussion. And and if, if anyone has any other questions, I'd always be happy to answer them. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, all right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors Inn. See you next time. Bye.